one, that accelerated my growth. Every morning, Monday through Friday at 9 a.m., you'll get a question to reflect on where a lot of the replies become interesting pieces of advice, right? I'm playing with one right now that I said, give the best advice you can in just two words. It had 3,000 replies. The Twitter algorithm, when people respond to something, it shows up in more feed. Hey, in this episode, I talked to Dickie Bush, who works in the finance industry, but has this wildly successful side hustle, teaching writers how to write better, grow their audience, and show up consistently, called Ship 30 for 30. This episode, we get into a ton of great stuff, how to grow your Twitter list, how to stay accountable. Um, we deep dive more than in any other episode on the Twitter algorithm, what works, what doesn't. Um, some of it is pure speculation, some of it you know, are, are things that uh, have been pretty verifiable. Um, so there's a lot of good stuff. I think you're going to enjoy it. I particularly love how Dickie has put together these flywheels that he's refining each time he does a new cohort on the course. There's a ton of momentum here. He's just absolutely going to blow up and it's really, really impressive. So with that, let's dive in. Dickie, welcome to the show. Hey, I appreciate you having me. Look forward to it. Okay. I think a lot of people who have well, all of our listeners are are very active on Twitter as well. And you can't be active on Twitter in the circles that you and I run in and not see, you know, your Twitter growth, see ship 30 for 30 growing like crazy, everyone, you know, posting essays and all of that. Before we dive into all of that, there's something that I actually didn't realize until prepping for this episode yesterday. And that's that everything we see online is just a side hustle for you. <laughs> Can you talk about you know, at a high level, uh, what you do day to day and then, uh, how you balance that with the, you know, your wildly successful side hustle. Sure. So what I do full-time, I'm a macro portfolio manager. And the way I kind of describe it is my day job is to predict the global economy and how that unfolds. And there's only so many charts and numbers you can look at on kind of a daily basis from, you know, seven, 8am to, to five or six. And so my writing online and kind of journey in that has been just a, a way to kind of step back from kind of the madness of, of markets and economies and things like that and explore just little interest to me. And that has uh, evolved relatively quickly uh, over the last, you know, nine months. In that, well, I'm glad you said the nine months timeline because that, that's roughly what I've noticed as well. What was... What was that inflection point where you decided you're going to, you know, really focus on building an online audience and, um, you know, start writing online? I guess a, a little bit of a backstory. It's probably longer than nine months. So I started writing online in January of 2020 with just a weekly newsletter. So I came into 2020 saying, you know, I'm consuming all these podcasts and books and articles and just interested in learning, but my notes would end up in the back of a notion notebook kind of right. into the void where, you know, there was no upside. And so I started kind of exploring, you know, how can I start to have a forcing function to learn more about the things I'm doing? So I just started writing a weekly newsletter, had seen, you know, people do it and you just curation and et cetera. So that was kind of my foray into it. And I did that for about 35, 40 weeks um, and started writing on a blog exploring, dabbling in, in some things that I was interested in. But in, you know, July, I'd probably, I'd published 30 or 40 newsletters in a row, a couple of blog posts, but just felt like I was kind of stuck and had so many ideas that I wanted to explore, but didn't have 
you know, the medium to do it where my feedback loop was slow. I was on kind of the weekly cadence, but it was inconsistent, et cetera. And so coming into August, I started just tweeting more and getting through these ideas. And I'm sure we'll talk more about Twitter. It's kind of an idea refinery, right? You can just get these ideas, clear the junk that's in your head to find out what you really want to talk about. And so that was, you know, that was kind of the inflection point was when I I made a new Twitter account in, in August and said, I'm going to start to share these ideas that I think I want to talk about. There's a bunch I want to ask there, but you said you made a new Twitter account. You just started one from scratch and kept, you know, forked off of an old one. What what did you do there? So that one, I had a Twitter, I've had Twitter since 2014, 2015, you know, a big lifetime, just been involved with the product and loved it. And there was a little bit of, okay, I'm going to pivot this. I had four or 500 followers at the time, had done some kind of thread curation and things like that. But my follower graph, I think was a little bit, not damaged, but Twitter's algorithm, if you went on my account and said, who is this person similar to? It was all inactive accounts from high school. And so I just wanted a fresh slate to kind of start over. And so I made the new account and said, hey, I'm making a new account. Want to kind of reset this thing. And so I didn't also have like tweets from high school and things like that in there. Right. Uh, so I just started fresh and it felt like a good way to do it. Did you, so you made a new account. Did you slide over like, you know, swap the, the same username or is it a different username? I swapped the username. So, cause that one, it's just Dickie Bush. I didn't want to lose it. So yeah, I changed the username on the old one, made the new one and then changed it back. So yeah. And you have that, that brief 45 second window where you're like, yeah, I'm like sprinting. I'm like, Oh, there's hundreds of people who are about to steal it. Yeah. They're just right. counting down. So that's the first time I've heard the, like the Twitter algorithm or this idea of a damaged account. Can you talk about that more? I'm it's a, it's a total hunch. Right. Yeah. But if now if you go on my account and it might have just been I didn't have kind of that breakthrough of followers, but it was, you know, now when you go on my account, the people I'm uh, similar to or other people in kind of our Twitter sphere. Right. Whereas in the old one, I was engaging in that community, but it was just inactive. So I, you know, I have no proof to back it up, but I was able to kind of grow what felt more quickly right after. Yeah, that's interesting. And and I wonder how that plays into it. Um, but I could totally see that of Twitter being like, I, I don't know. The guy's just tweeted about random stuff for five or six years. Like, what do you want me to recommend him for? And then you're like, no, 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 this stuff. And you're like, okay. But that's like 2% of what you've ever tweeted about it. So yeah, there's something there, but I, I don't know. I'd love for someone to uh, run some experiments on that and, and see if uh, how much that matters. But um one takeaway from it that I appreciate is you didn't just say like, Oh, here's a new thing that I'm doing. Let me lean that direction. You said, no, 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 this is something that I'm taking seriously. We're going to go all in on. And really you didn't, you weren't attached to some costs, you know, or like I, but I I've already 500 subscribers in, I'm going to throw it away. It was just the approach of like 500 is not going to take that long to get. It was almost like a acceptance of an inconvenient truth because I did have that sunk cost for like two months of like, oh, I have 500 followers. And when I made the new one and said, oh, I'm making this new one, like 45 came over, right? So, so many of those were inactive accounts as well. So, it was kind of this mental thing of like, oh, no, I can't give this up. But it was clear that I really hadn't done as much as I thought. So, that's interesting because that's the, you know, the person with an um, email list that they're proud of, but with a terrible open rate. And they're still like, I have 10,000 people on my list. And you're like, yeah, but you have a 5% open rate. You don't have 10,000 people. And they're like, no, I have 10,000, you know, 
And it's just like, you got to accept the reality and realize that no, you've got 500 people that actually are paying attention to you. Yeah. There's, there's tons of uh, like good heart flaw or just whatever, whatever it is where you have this indicator of like, Oh, I have 10,000 email lists, but no, you're, you're spot on. Yeah. So how many subscribers did you have like last July when you sort of started to take Twitter and, and writing more seriously or just before that? On my newsletter, I had about 200 and that was over mm-hmm. 40 or 35 weeks. And, yep. you know, I probably signed up about half of them and I, I hadn't done, you know, much on the growth side. I just was kind of writing it and saying, now, this is fun. It's a forcing function, what have you. And um, I started that Twitter account really with about 100. So relatively small uh, to start. You know, at that point, it sounds like you t- you transformed it from like journaling, here's what I learned, all of that, to actually focused on on growth. Is that right? Right. It was, I started to just, I, I took a look at all these things. What I had basically done in the nine months leading up to that was built up this idea of a blog post in my head where it's like, oh, I have to sit down and write this thing and edit it and get feedback on it. And so it just had this super slow feedback loop. And I had this massive list of ideas, like oh, all these different areas I wanted to explore, but no medium to do it. And so what Twitter became was just, I could share these one-off ideas, right? Feel like do a little bit of writing, make these small bets on if things resonated. And then at the same time to kind of have just more eyeballs on there. So I wasn't publishing into the void. I took what I was doing on my newsletter of, you know, podcast curation and started just summarizing the ones I was listening to. Right. And people appreciated that. It made them more digestible. So it was kind of this, this uh, value add while I was exploring these more ideas. Yeah. And that's interesting. I think um, I probably do the same thing of like building up like my favorite blog posts that I read are from where you can tell someone put a huge amount of time and effort into it. And it's polished, detailed, researched, you know, whether it's a piece from like someone like a James Clear or, um, you know, I love these like complete guide type posts. And so I find myself waiting, you know, and I might publish four of these a year or something myself, but exactly as you're saying, there's a lot more ideas out there and a lot of unrefined ideas that if you're not careful, like that's the unrefined idea is what's going to make it into your, like your long form detailed blog post. Well, I think it's important. That's an important point because now you can publish for a year because you have a, a credibility to it right. where in the beginning you could publish the ultimate guide, but there's not really anyone who sees you as an authority in that area, right? So in the something we preach in Ship 30 is you have to just get these ideas out there and work through a lot of it where people are going to be, come to your blog later once you've kind of built a small following versus people just finding their way onto your blog, right? So it's kind of a chicken or egg problem. And that's why I think the beauty of Twitter is you can start to accelerate these feedback loops um, versus just kind of publishing into the void. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So something that you're doing a lot, and I'm curious when this started is playing around with different formats for tweets, you know, and, and really with ship 30, I've seen you popularize that a lot of having a headline, you know, your lead in, in the tweet itself. And then the essay um, as an image, when did you start to notice that working? And was that inspired by anybody? So I've seen it all over Twitter early on, uh, not early on, but a couple months ago, where I think the very first one was, uh, I can't remember his name, but he, he was doing like venture capital um, 
blog, like blogs in a single screenshot. And I loved the medium, right? It's like Twitter is a horrible place for long form content or, or medium form content, I should say, yeah. right? Threads are kind of un, they're just a little bit clunky, right? I, there's a time and place for threads on like poignant advice and things like that. But there is a, sometimes you want to read something like that. And so the atomic essay is just a way to tweet something, expand on it all in the same medium, right? So it's like you said, with the lead in, you put something out there. If people want to read more, it they can click on the image, read it, but it's also kind of a standalone, whatever it is at the top, right? So it's like this optionality that you create that leads, and it's kind of a, it's a scroll stopper, right? People stop on images versus a, just a, a sea of text that's easy to kind of scroll through. Yeah, and what's interesting about it is also the load time. I have spent a lot of time in user experience. You know, I got started in designing uh, mobile apps and and just people have really interesting uh, behaviors when they're on their phone, especially uh, if the, the internet connection might not be the best and all of that. And you just see so many people click through to a site let's say it's currently popular on Hacker News that day and it's overwhelmed and the server is loading slowly and they'll just click right back out and move along because it didn't load fast enough. And there's also just this unknown of, sure, I clicked through this link, but what am I actually getting? And, and Twitter tries with a Twitter card to sort of give you a little preview maybe. Um, but the expectations and the load time are things that I don't think you should underestimate with you know what you're calling an atomic essay of just clicking right in. And I know you got to fit the whole thing in that screenshot. And so, you know, it's going to load super fast and I only have to commit to reading it for, I don't know, the next 45 seconds. And it's, it's something we talk about. And it's a quote from Julian Shapiro is where I first saw it is people don't have short attention spans. They have short consideration spans. And so it's a, it's an empathetic writing medium, right? It's like, you, you're not going to have to read very much. We try to say that you better grab attention, even in your atomic essay in the first line, because people can just swipe it away. Right. Right. So it's like a it's a way it's a way of thinking of we're not asking you to do very much by reading this It is clearly not going to take you all day. Uh, you can swipe away if you want. And yeah, the load time is interesting, too, because it's always right there. You named it an atomic essay um, is. What impact do you think that has had on on, you know, giving it a specific brandable name? It, it made sense to me as I see these as the building blocks for a lot of longer form content. And these, like you said, these, these blockbuster blog posts are really 15 or 20 writing sessions boiled down and kind of put all together where you could take one of the sections and it could be a standalone blog for a lot of them. So we see it as like this building block, atomic, you know, chemistry, what have you, physics, um, um, a lot of these longer form ideas. And so, and it, it just brings down the friction. It's I'm not publishing anything long. It's I, I got to pick one idea. I got about 200 words of space and I'm going to do it every day for 30 days. So all of these things kind of make it of lowering the like, oh, shaky hand to hit publish. Just take all that friction away and make it as small as possible. Yeah, I love it because you know, so many people obsess over word count, obsess over, um, I was going to say substance. I think I mean more like making it really impactful. And so, you know, if you're publishing on a weekly or a monthly cadence, then you're putting so much more pressure on yourself. And so, or they're doing the other thing where they're saying, I'm going to write every single day. 
and it never leaves their computer. Um, I'm curious as you made this pivot, you know, last, last July, last August, what did you notice different in your own writing habits? And maybe what were some of those examples of ideas that got refined, you know, when they actually, I guess, hit the market rather than just being inside your newsletter? I think first and foremost, I learned to write quickly. The part of the constraint is we say under 250 words, try to do it under 45 minutes and just get in the habit of being okay with B plus quality with A plus consistency in the beginning, right? Earn the right to focus on quality by getting through and building this consistency. And then, so that was kind of for me, my ability to think has gone through the roof too, where it's like, I have this every single morning, this Coliseum to do thinking on a single idea where anything I'm kind of want to explore further, I get 45 minutes to an hour to try to refine it. And the, the constraints of it, of getting it down to 250 words really improves my ability to kind of work through it in a, in a simple way. So it's all these things that just bring my thoughts a little bit more coherent. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and then are you still bringing it to long form essays or have you found that you're really focused on, on the shorter medium? So I haven't, I'm, I'm disappointed in how much long form writing I've done just because building the business side has kind of taken a lot of the long form content. So I'm still publishing along. I'm about to hit my 100th. And at that point, I'm going to start to flip back through them because I've, a lot of the things like my threads have been, you know, expanded upon atomic essays and, and things like that. So I, I have this foundation that I'm looking to put on a blog or on a, whatever from here, but I just haven't found the time. So I got this big backlog and eventually I hope to kind of pivot into, uh, into the longer form. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I'm, I'm thinking about the number of ideas that I've been putting down and, and writing into a book and found that because that format requires so much thought and structure and that it all, almost should be accompanied by this other side of the really casual, like if here for a high friction of we're going to put it into a traditionally published book, these are well-refined ideas, then we should have the opposite of and here is where there's complete freedom. You have to publish. I love the time constraint of like, try to do it in under 45 minutes um, and just iterate quickly and refine those ideas. So we think the constraints are the biggest part of it, right? Any, I'm, I'm writing a thread on this now. It's like there's seven or eight different constraints you can have as a writer and decisions you can make, you know, medium, platform, topic, length, time to write, publishing cadence, and every ounce of thought you put into those decisions takes away from your right. So everyone that comes into ship 30, it's like, here are the eight things you might have to decide. And we've already made them for you. Now go write every day for 30 days. Right? We give you the templates. We give you all the things you need. It's like, okay, just explore 30 ideas now. And we, the creative freedom that we see it unlock is, is tremendous. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about for a second about the format of ship 30 and so you, it's a, a course, you know, cohort based course that you're running monthly. How many months have you been running it now? So it's every six weeks, just to give a two week break in between to kind of reset. Okay. Uh, so the very first one was in November and we're on cohort number four, day 16. And today's what, April 14th. 
so yeah, we're on the fourth cohort right now. I had like in first reading, I, I had seen it as monthly and I was like, that must be crazy to go 30 days, like, and just, yeah, we found it like uh, with, with offboarding and trying to make improvements, like the two week between each one has just been a heads down sprint of how can we make this better? What can we learn from our offboarding and how can we ship as many new features? Uh, And so that's always a fun time, but yeah, it's about every six weeks. So is it a ramp up? And then like when when I sign up as a student, is there a ramp up over a first week or, or take me through that experience? You will sign up we drip you through like a resources sequence until the start of onboarding week. So onboarding week will start one week before the first day of the 30 days. So on that Monday, you're brought into the community Slack. We take you through a pretty comprehensive onboarding where, which is when you take the how to ship 30 for 30 course, which is our just, it's a, it's a writing course, but it's really a habit design course. Okay. We give you everything you need to set up, your daily writing workflow, all the templates and everything, and then work you through some more resources, get you introduced to the community, set you up in your accountability partners, et cetera. And then on Monday, you're ready to hit the road. Yeah. So, and then before that, you're talking about dripping it. So if I were to sign up, say, um, let's say I were to just miss, you know, sign up for one cohort and I'm like, oh, the next one sounds interesting. I could buy that today and then I would receive that content timed out you know, over a couple of weeks. So you wouldn't have access to the actual how to ship 30 course. We put that just as the week on this. These are more just how to improve your writing podcasts, articles, you know, things like that. And then on the first day, you're entered into a 30 day email course uh, written by Nicholas Cole, who's just one of the most, he's my business partner and the master of online writing, in my opinion. And he put that together of, Every single day you get a prompt if you're running out of ideas and then kind of an actionable piece of writing advice on crafting headlines, gathering attention, distribution, those kind of things. Nice. Yeah, that's great. Something else I noticed that you do um, in your pricing is that the pricing changes as it gets closer to the, the date. Can you talk about that? Yeah, the we like to have a good sense of how many we are going to have. Um, and there's also a bit of the most public momentum on it happens at the beginning of each cohort, right? So on day one through five, we've been on kind of a two-week two week break. And so during that first week and a half, people that are unfamiliar are going to be greeted with a bunch of new essays. And so we try to capture that momentum in saying, hey, if you want to sign up now, like you're going to regret it later if you don't pull the trigger earlier. And so it's just a, it's a way to incentivize early signups. And that gives us more clarity on the size of each one. Right. So something I I'm realizing I'm relying on a screenshot from my notes, but the pricing being like 199 until April 5th and then 249 until April 26th and then 299 from April 26th up until close. So, you know, it's basically saving 30% if you sign up today rather than saying, Oh, that's so cool. I'll totally do it. And then in 20 days from now, when it's actually time to sign up being like, Oh yeah, I've, you know, life got busy or whatever else. Right. It's all about taking action. And so that's what we try to incentivize. Yeah. So how do you think about um, the balance in, right, in the product that you're selling of in Ship 30 for 30? It's obviously courses, content, accountability, and all that. How do you think about the balance between a course, like in the, the content and the structure that you're selling versus the accountability of like, look, you have, you, you have all the ingredients you you just need someone to say like, 
like hold you accountable to shipping and, and, um, sitting down and doing the writing. Yeah. It's a, we try to front load the, here's everything you need. And then the 30 days give as much accountability as we can. So we have office hour sessions. We have, I'm popping into Slack. We have accountability partners. It's, we try to say, okay, if you have all these things in place to sit down on the first day of the 30 days and start writing, no matter what, day 11 is going to be hard. And so how can we intervene in that and continue to give you new ideas, engage with friends, bounce things around? You know, that is, so it's like a content, content, content course to begin and then all about accountability and community. When you're you know, running the same cohorts, you definitely see those trends of like, all right, day 11 is hard. I can totally imagine that. The number of times that I've had a daily writing habit start or, a, you know, any kind of daily habit, practicing the piano, you know, running or whatever else. And you hit basically that like day seven, you're like, yes, I've got a streak. And then day 10, 11, 15, somewhere in there, you're like, damn it, this is hard. <laughs> this is a lot of exactly. work. And we, we track a lot of that data where we're tracking the analytics to our web app where you publish the essay and we're able to see has have people started to fall off. What can we do? And we've learned from the first three, like if you can get to day six or seven with some momentum, you got a good chance. And then you're going to face another struggle around day 15. And we call it the dip. Just, you know, Seth Godin's the dip. It, it happens to everyone. And so we really intervened during that time. It's you get them over that hump and then they're getting to day 30. So we found kind of these places to intervene uh, to maximize the number of people that get all the way through. Yeah, that's interesting. So you're talking about this web app. So people aren't just posting their essays on Twitter or maybe to their existing email list. They're they're actually publishing them inside the application as well? No. So the application is just kind of a text box that okay. allows. So we started with a just a Figma template uh-huh. and distributed to everyone. But you can imagine the user experience is not that easy to you know maneuver a Figma template. So shout out to the the first two cohorts who kind of put up with that. Um, and we had a community member build this web app where you get full creative control, but with a much easier interface. And it, you export it right to an image, you tweet right from there, but there's no platform kind of for the images themselves yet. We're, we're thinking about something with it, but uh, for now, it's just just a standalone. Yeah, so how do you think about the, like the viral loops on this? I, I guess there's two sides of it. One is for the individual creator, you know, of the audience that they're building and all of that. But I'm, I'm more curious about for the product that you're selling, right? Of um, Ship30, it needs, you know, new um, new creators to come in and participate in all of that. And you have it really conveniently that all of your students, all, you know, all of your successful students are doing your marketing for you. How intentional was that? And then what changes or what tweaks have you made along the way? That was... Not as intentional as I would like to say that I had this thing, you know, big vision. But when it hit me that the more successful you are, the more marketing you do for the program, every successful one becomes kind of the front end, you know, asset for it. It was, I I knew we were onto something when that clicked. Uh, So I I threw in, there's little things like in the Figma template. If you want, you can put it your own URL, but if not, it just says ship30for30.com. You know, we have the hashtag, we have people... It's a very ubiquitous thing, right? So there's a lot of parts to um, the you know branding of it where every it's very recognizable. And if it's working, right, the audience that 
each member builds wants to then do it. Right. So it's kind of a, it's a beautiful loop. Yeah. Are there other um, products or courses or things like that that you've seen with uh, a similarly successful uh, viral loop? I'm not sure, to be honest. I, I think it's because of the nature of it being like a writing challenge in a sense, you there's a lot of other courses you learn something then apply it to something completely different. But this is a very specific thing of what your goal is, is to write. And so by nature of writing, you build in that, that viral loop. Yeah. And it's just, it's taking everything that would be spread out over a long period of time. Like someone might be thinking about, okay, I'm going to do a cohort based course. I'm going to, I'm going to charge a thousand or 2000 or $3,000 for it. It's this big thing. It's, it's going to be six weeks or three months, like a semester long, you know, or all of this stuff. And then they're going to implement what they learn over the next three, six, 12, 24 months. And that like, that's interesting. But what you've done is you've just taken all of this and crammed it down into one thing with very clear deliverables. And so all of that momentum happens all at once. And it's fascinating to me. Yeah. And I think it's why we've been able to grow relatively quickly. We started with 55 in the first cohort were 171, then 250. And now the current one is 335. Wow. Hmm. Okay. So, so those are some of the numbers get into the revenue side, right? Um, how much have, uh, have you earned from the business and, and what are you looking for going forward? So total, we've, we've done some things with the pricing where in the beginning, in the January cohort, the price was $99 because we didn't have the how to ship 30 course. We didn't have the email course. We didn't have a lot of the things that we put in place now where we feel much stronger about charging. So now right, the price as of right now is 250. And so our average price for every single person who has come through is about 135, but that's increasing now. And so the revenue breakdown from just ship 30 is right around 100, 100,000. And we have now, Nicholas Cole and I have launched a follow-on writing course called Write the Ship, which is for everyone who takes Ship 30 for 30 and really wants to double down in kind of an immersive online writing masterclass. It's the only way to describe uh, Nicholas Cole's book, The Art and Business of Online Writing, which of course is based on is the kind of head-blowing emoji where he's just been in this game for so long. Uh, and so he, he's the primary teacher for that. And that has done about 45,000 between. So those are when the first quarter, um, and based on just our, our current trajectory where we're looking to, I don't have an exact projection, but we just are, it's hard to forecast, right? We're just moving quickly and continuing to improve all the products. And, and on that side, uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. One thing, right. So those are all the really positive, exciting, um, sides of it. Um, one thing that I want to ask about is, especially cause it, it involves, you know, our community directly, um, is some of the, like when you first came out with the sales page and everything for, um, ship 30 for 30, um, like the cause and similarities to Sean McCabe's, um, uh, 30 days to better writing. And so I'm curious one, how that came to be. And then also, you know, how you handled a mistake like that. And then maybe the final thing is, is sort of this, this balance between, um, inspiration and us all being in the same community and learning from each other versus, you know, something like plagiarism, which is 
um, a big deal in the in the writing community. Yeah, that that was a, a drastic mistake on my side, and caught up in the idea I had was just market research on similar things. And I, to be honest, was it was just a terrifying moment for me when I realized what I'd done. Caught up in kind of a a swipe file of notes and different things like that. And right when I kind of clicked two and three, it was, I need to own this mistake spot on. And so I, I said, Sean, this is a massive mistake. I, I take full ownership of it. I apologize. And I took it. I mean, it had been up there for no more than a minute or two. No lie. And I, I took a step back after that and said, I have some, this has grown faster than I thought and had some work to do. And so I, I tried to, you know, took a step back and said, how can I prevent anything like this? I need to check myself. And that was a, a big moment of growth for me where I kind of got shaken awake. And I'm glad Sean was tremendously respectful and, and had every reason to be, you know, not as, as nice as he was about it. And so I'm very glad that we were able to, to kind of work that out. Yeah. Sean, I mean, Sean's an incredible human. I've known him for a long time. Uh, he actually lives here in Boise. He was over at my house like four days ago for dinner. Um, and, and so I, he's just so generous with his time and everything. And, and I think on the business side, there's a lot of places that you can make missteps. I've certainly had them with ConvertKit over the years with my own writing. Um, and so, you know, one, I think it's important to talk about them. Um, two, like exactly like you did, of just own up to it. There's this other angle that people can take of like, oh no, I didn't like, let's pretend that didn't happen or, or something. And that is a sure way to take, you know, a, a small problem and turn it into a huge problem. Um, cause the internet is very unforgiving of people who pretend that they didn't make a mistake, you know? Um, and so just like owning up to it directly and then sharing lessons learned from it. So, um, I love to hear that, you know, that was a point where you're, you're putting in more, uh, safeguards or things like that. Um, is there anything that, you know, you recommend for writers going through your course or how they should, you know, make sure to cite sources properly or, um, you know, bridge this gap between inspiration and, and, uh, like well-cited inspiration and what they're actually publishing. I think it's a, you hear it, it's an imitate and innovate where the more you can, all these ideas are remixes and you want the best way to do it is say where you're, you were inspired from. Right. And so it, it's credit in the footnotes or whatever it is, but the more you can take ideas and then expand upon them, remix them, bring them together with others um, is something we preach heavily. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. And what makes me think of, there's this idea of, you know, leverage selling products multiple times, all of this that I've talked about for a, a long time, you know, I wrote a book about it in back in 2013, all this stuff. And then I came across Jack Butcher, uh, you know, in the last couple of years, phrasing it as build once, sell twice. And that was just the, you know, there's all these concepts that he had just narrowed down into one really simple phrase. And it's like, oh man, one, I wish I thought about that. I, I thought of that because it's such a good phrase. Uh, and then, you know, two, I want to use it in my work. And so it's just like, okay, I, as a writer, I absolutely can. I just have to immediately say like, well, I learned from Jack Butcher. You just have to give that 
that credit immediately. Um, cause there, again, there's nothing new under the sun. It's all been said one way or another and it's just cite your sources. Yeah. Spot on. Spot on. Let's dive into the Twitter growth side. Cause that, that Twitter account that you spun up, you know, started from scratch, um, is now over 20,000 subscribers. So things have, have taken off. Um, what have you learned in going from zero to 20,000 and what are we at eight months now? Yeah, I think it's a, it's definitely a consistency side where I think I've tweeted 35 times a week for the last call it however long since August, um, have written three or four threads a week and Twitter, it's a fickle platform because you have to consistently create content and continue to put it out. There is a way you can kind of put some meta threads together and have, you know, ways of, of linking your old content. But at the, at the same time, if someone visits your site or, or your profile, they get about four tweets or your bio to decide to follow you. Right. So it's a consistent kind of putting things out and also just having a, a clear value proposition, either whether it's in your bio or things like that, where the amount of optionality that anyone has to follow other people on Twitter, you kind of have to have a, a decent calling point. So the, all the points you can put in place to make that easy uh, is the name of the game. So were there like in all the different types of tweets, and I'm wondering if you even break this down, all right, there are things where you're, or if I look at what's working for me, um, sometimes I'm surprised by it. <clears throat> and like I asked a question of, hey, what, and I was genuinely asking, um, what has made for a great Airbnb that you've stayed in? Because I own a few Airbnbs. I'm looking to level up the experience, et cetera. And that was like 350 replies and all this engagement and all of these followers. Um, and I was like, I was just, you know, taking advantage of the fact that I have a bunch of Twitter followers to get an answer to a question rather than, you know, looking for engagement. So I'm curious in all the different types of tweets that you could do, whether it's threads, questions, pithy little perfect you know, quotes, like things that people will always agree with. What stood out to you that has worked in those or are you just always playing with every different style? I have a, a couple consistent ones that I do. So in February, I, for, I've been journaling every morning for two or three years now and have kind of a staple of questions. And so this was one of my old blog posts that I published kind of into the void of my 10 favorite journal questions, 10 favorite questions to reflect on and where I found them. And I wrote up a thread on on those um, inspired by Tim Ferriss. Yep. And in February, he shared a link to my thread in his Five Bullet Friday. Yeah, I saw that. As a, and so that was for me. It was I, I mean I've listened to every episode. It was one of the coolest things to you know be just scrolling through and boom get your name hit in the middle of it. So one that accelerated kind of my growth. But at the same time, I'd been tweeting some reflection questions, and so now every morning. Monday through Friday at 9 a.m., you'll get a question to reflect on. And it's just an interesting question for me. And so I find that these consistent formats where you kind of become a, a Chipotle, like consistency, where people come to your profile and they know what to expect on a lot of things. Like I ask a question of the day on Mondays and Wednesdays of just, you know, what is financial freedom look like to you? Where a lot of the replies become interesting pieces of, advice, right? I'm playing with one right now that I said, give the best advice you can in just two words. And it had 3000 replies. 
Yeah. And just because it was so, and it was just a classic example of these constraints creating creativity. Um, but no, those, the ones that are just engaging, asking questions, obviously scale as you have an audience, but they're the most fun to ask. And as a nature of the Twitter algorithm, when people respond to something, it shows up in more feeds, right? So there's that kind of, like you said about the Airbnb, it was the reason so many people saw it was everyone else saw other people responding to it. As you look at the algorithm, are you seeing other things that are, you know, rewarded more um, since Twitter does reward, you know, at first it was just retweets. You know, if you wanted to be seen in other feeds, it had to be retweeted. And now favorites and replies are, are playing into it as well. Yeah, I think less so on the what works, it's the what doesn't work are posting links. And so if you try to take Twitter off, if, if you can see it in the data of if you try to post links to something, you're, it just gets crushed. I don't, I understand why. I don't know how they kind of program it, but I'm sure it's some algorithm to do so. But that is a reason to any kind of writing you do, and you're seeing it more, is you have to repurpose everything for Twitter. And that's what their goal is. Like they are taking flight in this creator ecosystem, right? They want you to stay on the platform, create content there. And so if you have a blog post and you're not, you know, I think Mario, who was on the last episode, does a tremendous job breaking down every post of the generalist into a thread. And that gets a lot of engagement naturally. Because if you just said, hey, here's the S1 Club breakdown, go click on it. One, people don't like to leave Twitter very much. And two, the algorithm doesn't like when you try to bring them off. Right. So it's a it's this double whammy that uh, if you're repurposing, you're going to get the best of everything. Yeah. And I mean, that's something that we've seen with um, YouTube quite a bit where YouTube does not like to drive traffic off of the algorithm or off of the platform. And the algorithm, you know, uh, you could say it, it's debatable whether it penalizes videos that drive versus it rewards uh, videos that keep people on the platform. Probably some combination of both. Um when we have these, this content that, you know, so I, I wrote an article, probably the last like really serious um, essay I wrote was called The Billion Dollar Creator. And I wrote that on my blog. It's, you know, I don't know, 3,000, 4,000 words long or something. Um, and that Twitter thread that I wrote of taking the highlights all the way down, you know, turning it into a thread and making sure there's images for each thing. That's probably the most popular tweet I've ever put out. Um, but I'm curious when you're thinking about taking long form writing and, and repurposing it for Twitter, when do you go to a thread? When do you go to, um, you know, an atomic essay or something put into, you know, a screenshot and is there a system there? There's not that clean of a system, but my kind of mental hierarchy is everything starts as a tweet. And if it's got a little engagement, I'll explore it more for myself and post it as an atomic essay. And then if that gets a lot of engagement, I know there's people are more likely to share threads. Um, I think just because the, you know, I think it's a little more natural of like a retweet versus retweeting the image. Um, so that's kind of my thought. And I think on the long form side, it's definitely a thread because it ties nicely in to most of your long form content. It's going to be a lot of, not standalone things, but sectioned off things, right? right? So you can repost each one as its own kind of standalone uh, all the way down. Yeah, that's interesting. Something else I see is like David Perel will often do this as he'll go back to these old threads um, or AJ who created Card um, 
he'll do, he has this thread that's probably like 500 tweets long at this point of like every update and improvement he's ever made to card. How do you think of that as opposed to new content? Yeah, that one's a little bit of inside baseball where if you, uh, if you have a tweet thread and you respond to it later, it shows the top tweet and the most two recent replies. So I just wrote a thread and it's my most popular one uh, ever. And it was just 10 inside twit like advanced Twitter tips. And that one blew up beyond my wildest dream. It had 40,000 likes or something like that. And one of the tips was if you want to re re uh, bring content back up to the top, just respond to it and don't retweet it. Like add a new layer of thinking to it or something like that. And it naturally just brings it back up to the top as if you just tweeted it. And so then people are seeing this, this tweet that's already um, popular. It's already maybe got 300 likes and 25 retweets. And they're like, Oh, this must be good. And they're not paying attention to the fact that it's, you know, six months old or six weeks old. Correct. Yeah, exactly. What are some of, of those other things? And then we'll obviously point people in the show notes to the thread about Twitter threads, if we can get more meta than that. Uh, so, okay. The first, well, the big thread was just advanced Twitter tips. Yeah. And it was things like how to create lists, how to block mute words. So that one is a little less prevalent, but I wrote one breaking down why I thought that one was successful. And that is kind of my approach to thread writing. And so a couple of just small ones is I, I of the camp that every tweet should act as a standalone. So I don't number things because you're able to engage and pop in and reply to single ones uh, on your own. I think there should be 90% of your thread success is going to be the very first tweet. And it's, it's just a exercise in copywriting. And we've seen all the trends of, you know, time for a thread or, you know, capitalized thread, those come and go. And once people get sick of reading them, there's a new one that comes out that kind of captures people. So that one is something worth spending more time on than because at the end of the day, like that's the click-through rate. Right. The better that you can get people to, you're just clicking on an article in the same sense, right? So however you can write your copy to, to bring that up. Uh, and then just, if you break down the virality of it, it's people share things that are educational or entertaining. And so you should very clearly see which one, like Sean Peary's Clubhouse thread. That's the funniest, one of the funniest things I've ever read. Yes. And I've, there was just no, it was long, it was the longest thing I've ever read on Twitter, but there was no way I wasn't going to go back up to the top and share it. And speaking of which, I guess one last tip is after you post one, you can quote tweet it at the very bottom to give someone kind of a call to action to jump back up to the top to share it. So it's, hey, if you enjoyed this, you know, jump back up to the top and, and share it with your with your followers. And then they can tap right on it and it brings it back up because so often you get to the bottom and it's just, you just swipe away. It's, you know, I'm on to the next thing, but this is, this is a way to say, Hey, if you enjoyed this, you probably forgot that this started up at the top here. They can click on it right away and share it. So it's just, you know, empathetic writing, getting them to do a little bit less work to go up and, and, and share it. Yeah. And that works well for you. And so one thing that you could do is if you did had some popular threads in the past, you could even put a, put that tweet at the very end reference, you know, doing the circular reference and that, you know, would work well to, uh, make the thread more effective going forward. And as you were saying, it would resurface the thread almost like a retweet would. Yeah. There's like a, there's a ecosystem of content you can start to create once you have a bunch of threads on a bunch of different topics. It's like, Oh, I've already covered this here. If you want to learn more about it. Boom. And it, it's a, like a Rome research of, uh, of Twitter 
which they don't do a great job of, of working out, but there's like a way to, to kind of link all your content together in a way that's almost immersive, right? You can just jump around, stay down the rabbit hole. Have you noticed something like on threads? Um, you'll see people, you know, do take Mario, for example, with a, you know, S1 club. Um, he's writing all that up. And then at the end, he's usually linking to like, go read the full piece. When that's buried a little further down in the thread, do you think Twitter penalizes that? Um, or do you think that works fine to link people off if it's at the end of the thread? I think that works fine. I think it's on the tweet level that you will are penalized for a link. So it's not that they like sense that you're trying to do it at the bottom. I think it's if it's like a simple if statement of if this contains a link, like penalize shareability. Oh, that's fascinating. What about media? Like I, I think about a thread um from Andrew Wilkinson that he did on uh it was like the the real story about private equity firms and being bought so it was like a mix of his his experience plus general experience and all that and his media all the way through was mostly like Scrooge McDuck you know gifts like diving into gold coins and like it wasn't that relevant but it did make it a lot more engaging and so I'm curious there's obviously the image to get people to click in and pay attention, but he had an image tied to every single one. Yeah, I, I had I've noticed that. I had I'm more pure text mostly because I'm not creative enough to like figure out an image for every single one. But uh, there are some like Sahil Bloom who writes tremendous threads on on finance does a lot of images in every one just to kind of give it some context and some texture. I think it is, um, and I'm sure it works for for everyone, right? But uh, it's not something I've particularly explored, but I think it's a, I enjoy reading them when they got some kind of image or little video clip here and there, um, or GIF that, that keeps the reader going. Something else that I want to touch back on is you mentioned you don't number threads, um, or like, you know, this is tweet four of seven, um, which is something that always annoys me for whatever reason. Uh, when people number the threads, I feel like, I don't know. It makes it feel like non-native content. Um, like it doesn't actually belong on Twitter. Um, it, it, like you were saying, each tweet can't stand alone. And often you'll find that where you'll click, you'll see something retweeted. You'll be like, oh, that's interesting. You click into it to see the replies. And then you realize that it's actually tweet five of a 25 tweet thread. It's not even the beginning of it. Um, and for some reason, it just seems less engaging when you're putting something in there that is not necessary for the tweet, the tweet itself. So I, I think that's a really good point. Yeah. Like the one slash, it just, it, it doesn't do much, you know, it, it takes away from the flow of it. Right. That's how I feel. Yeah. That's good. Okay. Bringing it back to newsletters. Um, so Twitter these days is one of the biggest channels that people are growing newsletters. Um, how has your efforts on Twitter, how has that played back for your newsletter and what's worked to drive, um, subscribe or followers from Twitter to newsletter subscribers? You know, I haven't done so. My newsletter is is just a curation of links that I'm interested in. Uh, on I just really call it growth. So growth of companies, people, systems, improvement, that kind of thing. Um, I have had really three events. I think I have like twenty nine hundred, three thousand subscribers on my newsletter um, because I've kind of focused more on Twitter. I feel like I could start to share my newsletter more to, to drive traffic, but the three that have one of my very first successful threads, I wrote one on Balaji Srinivasan that Naval picked up. And I went from 300 to 1,000 Twitter followers and 
from 250 to 800 newsletter subscribers just because I popped it at the bottom. And that was, I like to say it took 40 weeks to get to, to 300 in about nine hours to go to, to 800, which is just how it goes. Right. Um, but I have, my newsletter has turned more into just kind of a personal thing right. and the, the growth of it, I'm less focused on because it's, there's not, everyone has enough curation newsletters. I'm really writing it for me at this point. Yep. Will I take it to a different medium or something in the future? Maybe, but uh, to the, it's really just, you know, I'll tweet it out and pop the link at the bottom um, every, every Sunday when I write it, but nothing too, too crazy. Yeah. That makes sense. Is there anything as someone, let's say they've got 10,000 subscribers or 5,000 subscribers, they've got some traction. Is there anything that you would want to leave them with of things that have worked really well for you um, that, you know, you think other creators listening should, should take into account? Yeah. I think it's a, one of my biggest lessons learned on the content side was from Sahil, who I mentioned earlier, and it's create great content, but don't underestimate the importance of distribution. And for a lot of us, Twitter, especially if, or whether it's your newsletter, it's don't be, you want to feel confident in sharing the things you're writing, right? So it's almost this forcing function where if I say every thread that I write, I'm going to DM it to 10 people who I think will find it valuable. I know that I'm going to put more effort and more refining into my content. But at the same time, that's going to force me to create better content. They're going to be more likely to share it. And so I've fallen in this trap of, oh, I've, I've hit that 10,000 mark. Enough people are reading, right? But you never know. You could, they could be on an off day. And so the hustle for distribution and take it seriously, I think, is the biggest lesson that I've learned. And the result is better content and just more growth. Yeah, that's great. Well, where should people go to follow you on Twitter, subscribe to the newsletter, um, check out the course and everything else? Sure. So on Twitter, I, I spend way too much time. That's at Dickie Bush, D-I-C-K-I-E-B-U-S-H. I'm sure you'll find me there. Uh, if you want to learn more about Ship 30 for 30, that's ship30for30.com, 30-F-O-R-30.com. Um, and my newsletter is dickiebush.substack.com. So I keep it simple. Um and yeah, DMs are open, reach out. I, I love to, to chat and you'll definitely find me on Twitter. That's for sure. <laughs> I think that we've established for sure is that <laughs> you're very accessible on Twitter. Well, good times. Thanks for, thanks for coming on and uh, we'll chat soon. Cool. Thanks, Nathan. Appreciate it.